It's good to be together as it is another wonderful, glorious Sunday. If you're like me, oftentimes the days blur together and the weeks go by uh, quicker and quicker and quicker. So grateful to be together as a church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Um, We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. Only two sermons left, if you can believe that. We started this sermon series uh, about a year ago in September, and some 40-odd sermons later, we are now two sermons from completing this amazing account of what God is up to. And we've been tracing the theme, Thy Kingdom Come. And in the midst of a broken, hopeless world comes the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And with this king has come his kingdom, starting all the way back in Jerusalem, and it spreads there outward to uh, Judea, Samaria, and stretching even further to the ends of the earth. And it's a kingdom that's looked different than anticipated. As King Jesus had more in mind to accomplish than our own short-sighted desires. We don't have to read too much into the Gospels to come away with the conclusion that King Jesus and Jesus' kingdom simply look different than what people thought it ought to look like. And it not only looked different, but his kingdom also came and is coming in different and arguably unexpected ways. You don't have to look too hard in the book of Acts to see evidence of that truth. For God's kingdom has come through people that you wouldn't have expected. Through circumstances not even dreamed of or predicaments no one could have concluded as helpful at the time. Yet all the while, God is and has been at work bringing about the kind of kingdom and the means to bring that kingdom to bear through his perfect and his sovereign will. Amen? Acts chapter 27 is no exception. The kingdom is coming, and it comes in some unexpected and possibly undesirable means, at least in the moment. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Acts chapter 27, and that is where we're going to be uh, today. And as you get there, I want to share the, the sermon title, which is borrowed from a man whose name is Horatio Stafford. Maybe some of you are aware of this, young, this man. He was a successful Chicago lawyer who lived in the mid-1800s. And through some substantial tragedy, wrote the profound hymn, It is well with my soul. So that is today's sermon title, borrowing from Stafford, It is well with my soul. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter 27 starting in verse 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, 
They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustian cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship at Adrianium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Ariochus, excuse me, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were great against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind blew, did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the journey will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And so it was decided. Paul, as we remember from last week in Acts chapter 25, has been held captive for about two years. And a new governor gets appointed. His name is Festus. And wishing to gain approval with the Jews that he rules, he looks for an inn. And he doesn't have to look that far because the Jews are eager to bring Paul's case up, hoping to finally be able to put him to death, either justly or unjustly. And Paul perceives all of this political motivation of that of Festus, and he appeals to a higher court, the court of Caesar, to which Festus can't stand in his way. Even if it means losing some political points, Festus is bound to send Paul to Caesar to be heard. Not having a clue what to say to Caesar concerning Paul, Festus invites King Agrippa to listen who is a Jewish king, and to allow some um, facts to Festus to write concerning Paul. And we know that they listened, but they really dismissed Paul's words. Regardless, Paul has petitioned to go to Caesar, and so he must go. More than likely, Paul would have uh, had to wait in Caesarea until other prisoners were collected and would journey under guard for Rome. Choosing to travel by sea, they set sail and travel north up the coast to a place called Sidon. Do you have the map? Can you throw that up there, Josh? All right, so they start over here in what is called Caesarea, and that they travel northbound up the coast 
to a place called Sidon. This was most likely a small sailing vessel that was intended to take them further north and would require transferring them to a larger ship soon thereafter. Now, because of the verbiage used continually in Acts chapter 27, as well as the inclusion of Ariarchus, whom we met back in Acts chapter 19 while Paul was in Ephesus, we are led to believe that Paul was able to have friends accompany him on his journey to Rome. More than likely, these individuals, Luke, Ariarchus, maybe others, would have had to pay for their own travel. Verse 3 tells us that the centurion named Julius, whom Paul and the other prisoners were entrusted to, treated Paul with kindness. So sailing northwest over the edge of Cyprus, verse 4, they landed in Myra, which is on the north edge of modern-day Turkey. It is right here area. They're sailing upon the north edge of Cyprus. Verse 4, there the centurion found a ship sailing for Italy, and he gained passage with them. Verse 6, but having much difficulty due to the wind, instead of sailing straight west, which would be the desired route to get to Italy, they get pushed southwest to the island of Crete, which is located here. Sailing closely along the coast for wind cover, they finally land in the midpoint of Crete, which is called Fair Havens, which is right here. Verse 9 tells us that much time had passed, and we don't really know, honestly, up to this point, how long Paul and the others are on their journey. But we do know from other historical accounts that sailing in the open seas after September 15th was highly dangerous. And verse 9 references the fast that was already over, which is the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar which is what Luke references here, and more than likely, it was observed by Paul and other Jews in fair havens as they were there. Verse 10 says that after the uh, day of the feast was over, more than likely, Paul pleads with them to stay and winter there. Traditionally, all seafaring traffic would come to a complete stop from November 11th to March 10th. Seeing that cloudy weather would have made it impossible to navigate using the stars in the night sky, Paul pleads but is not heard by his Roman guard, the one ultimately in charge. He pays more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship, verse 11. And desiring to winter in a better harbor, Further west in Crete, they lift anchor and they push off towards their, their, their desired destination, which is in Phoenix, which is on the western side of Crete, right here. So let's continue reading in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore, 
But soon a tempest wind called the northeastern struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to underrid, undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, we, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will, it will be exactly as I have been told. But, you, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms, a little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in, in, in without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Believing that they had fair wind, verse 13, they lifted the anchor and they tried to head west. Yet a strong wind called the northeastern came from the north down over the land of Crete and they were pushed southwest to another island here as opposed to going to Phoenix where they intended to go. Verse 16, running under the lee of Kata, located southwest of Crete, they manage 
to get the lifeboat hosted onto the ship. Apparently, they were towing it along with them for the previous time at sea, and concerned that the boat itself would be broken apart, the crew takes uh, the ship's hull, and by running ropes horizontally under the ship's frame, they tie it together, hoping that that will save them to better secure the timbers in case they struck ground or ran into some unseen reef. Then fearing that the wind would push them further south to a place called Citrus right here in North Africa, which is a well-known boneyard that claimed many, many ships and lots of lives, the crew began to dismantle pieces of the ship. Masks, sails, tack, verse 19. And leaving those pieces of the ship attached, they throw them into the sea, hoping to generate drag behind the ship so that it would not be pushed any farther south than what was necessary. During which time, an effort to lighten the weight of the ship so that the raging waves would lift the vessel Compared to sink it, verse 18, they began to jettison the cargo in the ship. And if that wasn't enough, verse 20, neither sun nor stars, the only means at this time to navigate and understand your own location, did not appear for many days. And in only Lukean style, he says, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of being saved was abandoned. There they were, hopelessly tossed to and fro in the midst of the endless sea, whose plight was grim and no hope of being saved remained. at least for most. We're told by Luke, the author, that Paul, seeing the physical condition of the men and the hopelessness thereof, stands before them and he says in verse 21, men, you should have listened to me and have not sailed from Crete. Now at first blush, it seems like an untimely point to pull out the card, I told you so. <laughs> right? However, I think a more careful reading of the account shows Paul's intended heart. I think the statement should be better understood as, men, I was right then, trust me now. Take heart, for the God that I serve has seen us in this plight, and through a messenger, through an angel, has told me that no loss of life will take place, not a hair on your head will perish, only that the ship itself will be lost. Therefore, take heart, take food, and be encouraged. Verse 25, for I have faith, get this statement, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Notice the promised hope does not remove the painful journey in verse 27. 
For 14 days they were driven across the sea. When about at midnight the sailors, hearing water hitting the shore, believing that they were coming close to land, fearing that they might strike land, they uh, tossed down anchors into the sea, hoping to stop the ship and wait and pray for daybreak so that they might better see where in the world they are going. The text tells us still are, uh, many are still fearful and try to escape under pretense of trying to help people. And Paul reminds them of their need to stay with him. And the centurion, who once doubted Paul, now trusts him. And he cuts the ropes that hold the lifeboat, and it drops into the sea. Paul continues to communicate hope throughout the night, verses 33 and 34, encouraging the men to eat and be strengthened. And we're told here at the end that the company of all aboard is 276 people, sailors, Romans, and prisoners. Let's finish reading chapter 27, starting in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, and they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they, came, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Praise God for daybreak. Seeing the land, not recognizing it, they cut the anchors that hold the ship in position. They lift the mainsail. They lower the rudder back into the water, giving them ability to steer. And I'm sure with as much hope as they can muster, willing the ship towards the sandy beach, holding their breath. Verse 41, but they strike a reef. The vessel runs aground, it's stuck, and what's more, what the text tells us, is that the boat is being torn apart by every battering wave that hits it. The soldiers, believing that they have no choice but to kill the prisoners, lest they escape from their charge, they plan to kill them. But verse 43, the centurion, the man in charge, wishing to keep Paul safe, kept them from carrying out their plan. And instead, whether it be by swimming or driftwood, all were brought safely to land, just as God had promised to do. 
What an account. And I'm quite sure words don't even really do it justice, do they? One question that I have in my mind as I read through Acts this week is why spend so much time recounting these events for us as the recipients? In short, I don't really know. (laughs) At least not fully. Maybe it's because of the common culture understanding the long sea voyage and what it might communicate to pass through the waters and come out the other side. As one writer put it, to survive a test of life at sea was to be portrayed as righteous. One doesn't have to think too hard or too long to think of Homer's odyssey or the Old Testament book of Jonah. let alone the numerous passages in Scripture where God's almighty power is communicated by His command of such an endless, almost unfathomable element of the world as the sea. Do you know that scientists today believe that about 91% of the ocean species have yet to be classified? 91%. More than 80% of the ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored in 2022. And yet it is this great element of creation that God commands, saying in Job chapter 38, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? God's question to Job, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measures? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, but no further. Most, if not all, of Acts chapter 27 could be summarized with the statement, Nothing went to plan. Nothing went to man's plan. Think about this with me for a moment. Experienced soldiers, seasoned sailors, no lack of strenuous effort here. And all of that plan is laid aside by the God who cannot 
and will not be thwarted. Because he has a kingdom to bring. A purpose to accomplish. And as we have seen in Acts time and again, And so it is here. No detail is left to chance with our God. Who sees all. Who controls all. And is orchestrating all to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Amen? Hiroshio... Stafford was a successful lawyer and a real estate investor in Chicago in the mid-1800s. His wife, Anna, and him had one son and four daughters. In 1871, the Staffords lost their little boy to scarlet fever. And later that year, lost the majority of their property holdings in a Chicago fire. Just two years later, they intended to travel to Europe. And Anna and the four girls traveled ahead of him. And their ship quickly sank after it hit another vessel and only Anna survived. Sometime later, as he traveled to Europe, near the place that his daughter had drowned, he wrote the words of the psalm, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, Whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Where does a perspective like that come from? For Horatio or, or Paul or anyone else for that matter that has, as life is assured to give, grief, Sorrow, pain, suffering, and difficulty. How do you and I, independent of a voyage at sea gone wrong, cling to the truth that whatever my lot, we can say it is well with my soul. In closing, one point of application that I would encourage us to consider to help cling to the truth and cause you and I to say, regardless of circumstance, maybe in the midst of tears and pain, that it is well with me, is the triangle of trust. If you've been around a while, you know what I'm talking about. There's a triangle... And with it, there are three truths concerning what we ought to believe about God. 
The first part of the triangle on one side, one leg, is that God loves you. That the God that made you deeply, earnestly cares for you and is affectionate towards you as a good daddy lovingly cares for and provides for his children. That that God sent his only son to live, die, and be raised from the dead so that anyone who would believe might have life eternal. Our God loves you. The second side of the triangle is the reality, is the truth that God is good. That our God is holy, otherly, righteous, pure-hearted, without fault, guile, or deceit. That no evil thought or motivation passes through his intimate and eternal mind. Because our God is a good God. Third and lastly, the last part that creates the triangle is the truth that God is in control. That our God is the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and controls all things. That no atom in the universe is outside his sovereign power to command and bend to his will. Amen? Because our God is in control. Between these three rails, a God that loves you, that is good, and is in control, is our ability, I believe, in faith to say, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say that it is well with my soul. The challenge, if you're like me, is that all too often, all too often, I lack the belief in God's character as good, as loving, or in control. I can and do question any number of those characteristics daily. And as my daily plans and my pursuits often get mixed up because someone isn't responsive or on time, I question God's control. Surely that can't be your plan, God. That His purpose in every detail of my day, even when it doesn't go according to my plan, is always going according to His. And the challenge there is if I don't question His sovereignty... Okay, I guess God wanted this milk hauler who's supposed to only put so much milk into a truck and overfills the truck and makes a massive mess. I mean a massive mess. I guess God wanted that to happen. He was in control of that. I guess my son, who was throwing up all night last night, I guess God wanted him to do that and ordained it so. Okay, fine. You're the boss, God. You're in charge. Okay, fine. Who am I, right? If I don't question his sovereignty, then I do question how all or any of that can be for my good. 
How can any of that be loving to me? Maybe God intended for me to be burdened with difficult relationships or have the neighbors that I have deal with the chronic pain that I have or difficult health issues or fill in the blank. Okay, fine. God, God is in control of all that. But is that truly God loving me? Does God care or even see me in the midst of all of that? Can that really be good? I must consider that in the midst of the sea storm, God saw Paul. Not only did he see him, but lovingly sent him the hope that Paul needed to get through. It's convicting to think about, to think about all the details of my day and my life and consider all of them as being given to me by a God that loves me, that is good and is in control, isn't it? But I would charge us to consider, is it just that way in the book of Acts and the characters of the Bible that God is so passionate about his purpose? Or is he also that way with you and I? Is his kingdom still coming? And if so, should we not anticipate a life more like the book of Acts, or at least we ought not be too much surprised, <laughs> even though I am, when God continues to use some of the same means to bring about the same kingdom in our lives. My prayer for myself and for this church is that we can help one another with gracious love, but firm conviction that regardless of circumstance, we can say that you can tell me that it is well with my soul because we are clinging to the reality that our God is a God that loves you, he is good, and he's in control. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are good, sovereign, the one who loves us more deeply than any other creature than any other thing in this universe, and you are with great purpose orchestrating all things for your glory and our good. Even the events of weather, travel, difficulty, sorrow, Nothing's wasted, oh God, in your economy. And in the midst of all that, you see us and draw near to us, O oh Lord. That your grace is sufficient for us in the midst of all of that. God, may we be a church 
that loves one another, that can bear the burden of life with one another, and in so doing, point one another towards the eternal truths that you are working out your good and perfect will in our lives. And Lord, haste the day when thy faith shall be sight, when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, when the trumpet will sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen.